Hello, everyone. Hey, how are you all going tonight? Good. Are we, we good to go? Good to go? Yep. Awesome. Uh, welcome to the water cooler. This is issue number 37. I'm your guest host for tonight. My name is Alice Gatland. Uh, this is my first time doing this, so I'm really excited to be here. Um, normally, it's hosted by the hilarious and very talented Alice Snedden, so I like to think that I'm the substitute Alice um, for this month, but very happy to be so. Um, tonight, you're going to be hearing stories from these three lovely people here. We have Grace McGuire, Laura Giddy, and Jordan Mark Windsor, so i um, very excited to hear their stories. And this month, the theme is in the flesh. So we're looking at the, the beautiful, ugly, gross, wonderful, mysterious thing that is our bodies, um, which I think is a great topic to talk about, right? Like, there's just so much going on there. I, I don't know. I don't know about you guys, but... Um, no, I, I think a lot of the time when we talk about bodies, um, we do talk about them in really negative ways, though, I find, right? Especially when we're talking about our own bodies. Um, I think, I mean, obviously, it's the outward um, experience of ourselves. And I think, hello. <laughs> right? That's how I feel. It's quite, we can be quite critical um, of ourselves and, and even of other people. Um, when I was a bit younger, I kind of decided that I wanted to try and get out of this habit of having these discussions that I think are like a really intrinsic part of um, the conversations that we have, like women, but also I think all genders really have these conversations just built into the ways that we interact with each other. And like, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's wrong, but I kind of got to a point where I felt like it was, it was like not making me feel good. So I tried to step out of it, but it's really hard, right? It like happens all the time, you know, conversations about, you know, what you're eating and commenting on whether you've been good or bad and, and commenting on your own bodies and other people's bodies. Um, I always think of one experience I had where I was babysitting for a friend of a friend and they came home and the, the mother and her friend were talking about an interview they'd read in a magazine. And in this interview, a Victoria's Secret model, so, you know, like one of the most beautiful people alive, um, had talked about her, how her strategy for eating was that she would only eat when she was naked in front of a mirror. And she said, yeah, she said it was like, it, was, it would be like, you know, do I really need those nachos? Um, and the woman was talking about this, and she did kind of joke that, like, this was probably an eating disorder. But, which, you know, like, this is... This is this woman, um, you know, that's the only way she's consuming food. But also that it was kind of a good tip. I don't know, it just really... <laughs> it just really bothered me. Um, partly because her, her three-year-old daughter was there as well. And I was like, I mean, I don't know anything about parenting. I don't have kids, but it just... It reminded me of that I wasn't much older than that before I started, like, thinking of myself in critical ways. I don't know. But anyway, so the way I tried to deal with this is I tried to, like, deflect the conversation by making a joke. Um, and so I was like, yeah, eating nachos naked, so much hot cheese, sounds pretty dangerous. Um, but rather than, like, following me down this rabbit hole of, like, hot cheese on nipples or wherever we were going, she just kind of brought it back. She was like, yeah, dangerous for a lot of reasons and brought it back to the, the weight loss thing. I don't know. It's, it's just interesting um, that it's so ingrained in the way that we communicate with each other. 
Um, I also think that it's really interesting when we think about how we relate to bodies, this idea of um, kind of ourselves being separate to our bodies. And when I was thinking about talking about this, I was like, yeah, I'll go into like the mind-body duality. But then I realized I don't know anything about philosophy, philosophy and I'm actually like way over my head. Um, but I do think that in our culture, we do think of ourselves as quite separate from it, right? Like very mind over matter, very like, um, you know, we, we have our mind that controls what we're going to do. Um, and, you know, that makes sense. But then on the other hand, when I'm really hungry, I get so grumpy, like every time, right? And I, I lose my objectivity or whatever objectivity I, I had. And like, if I'm not aware of it, then I just believe that's the truth, right? So I don't know. I think, I don't know. This is me like doing some, some prodding at what philosophers have been discussing since the beginning of humankind. So ignore what I'm saying. Um, my third and last little point that I wanted to make about bodies is that I really like looking at them. I think, no, I think they're really interesting to look at, except not hot people. Like, I'm just really bored of looking at good-looking people naked. I mean, like, you just see them everywhere, right? It's just, it's all in your face and films and billboards and porn and whatever. I'm just kind of sick of it. I really want to, like, look at, I just want a good chance to look at, like, someone that's really old naked. Or just, I stand by that. I'm going to stand by that statement. Um, or, you know, things, bodies that are like different shapes or like different colors or different textures than you're expecting. Like, I feel like we need more of this. So um, I don't know who, to, who to can like make this change happen. But I just thought I'd put it out there as a general request. <laughs> I don't think I, I'm the only one, surely. Anyway, um, let's move on to the stories. Uh, very excited to talk to our first speaker, Jordan Mark Windsor. He's one half of the film directing duo Thunderlips, a father of a six-month-old called Muffin. Hi. <laughs> Resides in a filmmaker's commune at the bottom of One Tree Hill and, according to the write-up I have, lives in a perpetual state of bliss. Shall we give them a round of applause? Fuck you, Elise. <laughs> now, Jordan, I did find out when I was talking to you downstairs that you didn't actually write, write up that little description. No, no, I didn't. Okay, who wrote that? Uh, she did. Because <laughs> I have to say, like, a perpetual state of bliss, that's a pretty big call. Yeah. Do you stand by that? Do you yeah. think that's how you live your life? I think, yeah, I think, I think I have a wonderful life. That sounds great. I feel like you could write a self-help book or something. I don't, yeah. That. No, I, I think I'm just very privileged. I don't, I don't, it, there's nothing I did. That's lovely. Um, <laughs> tell me about Thunderlips. Uh, Thunderlips is myself and my buddy Sean, who's over there. We make music videos awesome. and commercials. But mostly music videos, and we're we're the best at it. Again, with the big calls. No, that's, that's awesome. How did you get in? How did you get into that? Um, I always wanted to make movies. Um, Sean, I think, was doing kind of the same thing. And uh, do you mean me or how we ended up working together? I guess it's two different stories. Both, either. Yeah, I want I, I want I wanted to make Star Wars. 
when I was a kid. That's the, I mean, that's the, that's the gist of it. And how did you two end up working together? Uh, yeah, we were making music videos with each other. Like, we would be different roles on the crew. And, and then we were like, hey, I think the reason we're actually doing this is because we like working together. We might just both be the director. Awesome. Yeah. And I then we get to have a sweet name. Thunderlips. Thunderlips. Where, like, where did the name come from? Um, it's Hulk Hogan's character in Rocky Three. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, and I did want to ask one more thing. There's just so many things in this description to unpack. <laughs> Filmmakers commune. Oh, yeah. Um, we're called Candlelit Pictures, or, or Camp Candlelit, and we live in an old folks' home. There's a lot of people here tonight that live in that building. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we, we like making stuff. That sounds pictures. cool. Yeah. Okay, well, before we get into the story, is there anything you need to, to say before you get into it? No, no. Excellent, let's hear it. Should we give him another little clap? Yeah. Jordan, Mark Winter. This is the story of uh, when I gave birth. I mean, it's, yeah, it sounds bad, but uh, you wouldn't know, but I, I have done that. And uh, you're going to learn all about it. Um, I would like to ask for some audience participation, but uh, you'll, I'll, 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 I'm just warning you now, it doesn't start yet. Nobody do anything. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, the, the story starts, it takes place over a few hours, but it starts in the morning. Um, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get straight into it. Um, there's, a, there's a series of sounds that happen when you, when you give birth in the, in the lead up. And uh, they have a very profound effect on the body, you know. We're talking about the body. Uh, I would like to invite everyone into that experience. And I think you'll all end up having the emotional, physical uh, responses that, that, that everyone has. And um, it's very helpful if you ever have to give birth. So would everyone please hold hands? Because that's, that's, that's going to happen. Thank you. Okay, so... Um, the, the the first the first sound in the in this story is um is the first one that the midwife heard on the on the morning of the event, um, which was something like uh, <sighs> okay something, something like that. Um, but it it sounds it sounds kind of painful. You'll notice, and obviously, if you make painful sounds like that, you're gonna end up uh, feeling feeling pain, and so. Uh, it's it, there's there was some collaboration between me and other people in the birthing of this child, and so we're all going to collaborate a little bit as well. And every uh, minute, and I would ask you to to initiate this. Every minute from from now on, um, we're going to take a little pause for a contraction, and we're all going to squeeze each other's hands hard, and we're all and and we're all going to try to make a noise with me, and it's it's supposed to be. If we're going to end up feeling good after this, it's supposed to be a really deep, guttural belly noise. I will demonstrate something more like, instead of the noise I made before, something more like, <sighs> something like that. You actually end up feeling good if you make those noises. Okay, so we're going to start now. Can you time us up for uh, about 40 seconds? <sighs> Everyone do it with me. <sighs> with breath. <sighs> 
You're squeezing someone's hand? You can squeeze my hand. The sound could be warmer. It sounds too pained. Okay, just one more, one more, and nice and warm. Okay, that one's passing, and they're not exactly off and on, but we're going to treat it like that. Um, can you time for a minute from now, because we're going to go through that again. Okay, so the midwife hears that noise, and she decides it's, uh, it's, it's go time. And so, um, with some difficulty, I get into the car, uh, and we go to the hospital. As I said, I had some support. Uh, we get... We get into the birthing room itself, which uh, is decorated by my mother. She put some trees and, and stuff in there, a rug. Um, it was very nice. Um, yeah, we, we get in there, and there's been, there's been contractions the whole way along. I got to use the special uh, button on the elevator that's like, you're in labor, <laughs> which I've always wanted to do. Um, but even in the elevator and stuff, there's contractions where we are, yeah, where it's it's a, yeah, okay, so we're going to go through it again. Okay, guys. You don't want you don't me to hyperventilate, so... Okay, you guys keep going. That's good. You keep going. Um, so we get into the birthing suite, and um, I'm like, you know, on the bed and stuff. <sighs> You're squeezing those hands, right? You can. There you go. You can stop that one. But there's gonna. But there's gonna be another one in a minute. Um, so uh, the the baby is breech, and so there's some interesting body stuff that that happens when you breech. Uh, the butt comes out first. And the legs are up on either side of the head. But what this means... It's, it's not time yet, but good try. Um, so uh, one thing that happens is that when the, when the baby engages in the birth canal, uh, it poops. Um, obviously, it doesn't really exist yet. It's more like you pooping out of your vagina. Um, and so, so that's, that's an interesting body thing that happens, you know, with a breech baby. Breech babies, interestingly, are considered, uh, special in some cultures. They're, they're supposed to be shamans and stuff. It's very bizarre to be, um, in that configuration. Some people at the hospital were not happy with the situation. We, uh, <laughs> yeah, we're having another contraction, guys, so. <sighs> Uh, don't breathe too fast. We keep going. Keep going. Okay. So, um, so there's, there's, you know, there's, there's poop, um, which at first is called meconium, but um, eventually there's, there's other kinds. Meconium is a black tar-like substance that babies poop out at first, 
And it's sort of a keep going, god damn you. Uh, yes. Oliver, god damn you. Uh, no, I, Jesus, it happens a lot of times. That, that'll do. Um, okay, so, uh, yeah, so meconium, it's, it's sort of like the thing that they give you so that you don't think poo is too gross at first. But, but yeah, everything comes out. And then, um, you know, the, the baby's like really engaged now and its little, its little butt starts to show a curious thing that even doctors don't seem to know about the body is that if the butt of a baby is, is sort of going in and out of the birth canal with each contraction, it can develop a blister. This particular child was born with a, a series of blisters on one, on one butt cheek. Um, because, yeah, there's a lot of things going on. And one way of supporting them would be for you to please uh, join me in another contraction. You guys are great at this. Do you feel good? I mean, I, I, I feel... I, uh, that's good. That's good. We'll let that one go. That was a, that was a brief one. Um, it happens. No, you don't really know. It's all over the place. Um, and then, uh, so the baby's, you know, developing a blister. Um, and so it becomes imperative to finish this, this story. Um, and so the midwife suggests that for the next contraction, instead of just uh, letting go when the urge goes away, we continue to push through the contraction. And you're, you're going to continue doing what you're doing, and I'm going to give you the, the sound, and then I'll tell you what, what happened. You'll know. We can stop after I make this noise, and you'll know. So, um, so, so here we go. And this is going to be slightly longer than the other ones. I, I, what is that, boredom? That's... Uh, that's not supportive. Uh, you're not supposed to be getting uptight. And then the baby came out and hit the floor and and started crying and everyone stopped um contracting and there were tears. It was adorable. And that's the story of me giving birth. Uh, thank you for your participation. Come back, sit down. Yes, of course. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, wow. I, I do love that you've talked about birth because I don't think anything else quite captures that mix of like, this is amazing and also this is like, oh, in, yeah. in the body, right? Yeah, it's very physical. I'm going to say that that was, that was, I found that pretty harrowing. Oh, uh-huh. <laughs> And I anyone out there that's actually given birth, that's amazing. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. You're amazing, amazing me. Me too. Yeah. Um, that must have been such a, a, a special moment, though. Is this, this is your only child, right? That's true. So it's your first time through the process? That's true. And, and... <laughs> so cute. So cute. I've lost my train of thought. You love it. <laughs> That's what happens it's, after what we just went it's through. It's past her bedtime. She gets she gets pretty chatty. Um, but yeah, what was I mean? What was that like? I know you've, you've talked us through the process, but what's going on in your head through all of this? Um, you know, uh, there 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 wasn't a lot of thought. Uh, at all, I think it was it was a very physical process. A lot of hand squeezing. I hope there was some serious hand squeezing because that's because there were like there were marks, you know, afterwards from the hand squeezing. And uh, yeah, that you don't really have any time to think. You know, you have the the a few moments between each contraction to try to relax and prepare for the next one. But yeah, it's a it's a it's a very physical experience. I couldn't say there was anything going through my mind at all, really. It was yeah, all body. That's amazing. Well, I'm going to let you go because I feel like Muffin wants to be taken home to bed. But thank you so much, um, Jordan Mark Windsor. It was, yeah, let's give him another round of applause. Oh. Okay, well, shall we move right along to our next speaker, Grace McGuire. Um, Grace is a dental hygienist on a mission to improve oral health in New Zealand. Um, bye, Muffin. Uh, yes, a dental hygienist on a mission to improve oral health in New Zealand, also a water ballerina, volunteer for the Show Me Shorts Film Festival, Asha, here at the basement, and works part-time at Lego. Shall we give her a round of applause? How are you going, Grace? Um, good, good. So, dental hygienist. Yes. When you tell people that that's your job, what's the, what's the question that they always ask? Um, or the thing they always say? Most people just do this thing where they just cover their mouths. <laughs> That's the general response. I've, since we've been chatting, I've been becoming like more and more uncomfortable with like the sensation of my own teeth. I have to say, <laughs> I like want to not open my mouth as much. The general sensation. <laughs> do you actually go around noticing people's teeth though? Not as much as you would think. I think. Um, Recently, I went out with this guy, and afterwards, he was like, he sent me a message being like, you do have really good teeth. And I, and I was like, I felt like I had to respond with a comment on his teeth, um, but I actually hadn't noticed. <laughs> so, maybe not so much. Only at work, I guess, when you're really in there. You didn't like, give him a rating back? <laughs> no, nah, but then I was like, next time, I'll check. <laughs> oh, <it's> so stressful. <laughs> Um, what's the like? What's the the strangest work experience that you've had with people's teeth? Um, I think something that people don't really think of when they think of being at the dentist is um, the fact that people can actually talk a lot more than you would expect when your hands are in someone's mouth, and people often actually confess, like kind of like at the hairdressers, where you'll just be like. Oh, this is happening to me at the moment. It's just, it can be kind of quite full on. It's almost like, I don't know, like being someone's therapist as well as 
their dental hygiene. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> um, and well, I want to look at some of the other things. What What is a water ballerina? Um, uh, I am part of a wet hop, uh, the Wet Hot Beauties, which is um, a synchronized swimming troupe. We did a show at the Fringe Festival, Just Been. Um, there was about 85 women and one guy in this troupe, so it's a pretty pretty big group of us all rallying together to do like pretty much a dance in the water. That's so cool. Yeah, it's pretty... So you go down, like people come down to a swimming pool, obviously, (laughs) they have to watch you in the water. Yeah, yeah. So um, we performed at the panel bus um, and it was in the evening so that the lights and everything were in effect. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but they put up seating and everything, so it's pretty full on production. How did you get started in that? Funny you should ask, because actually um, the first show I did was in 2009 or 2010, and we, um, one of my patients was actually the choreographer, and we got along really well, and she, we were, as we were chatting at the practice, and she was like, hey, you should come do this thing that I'm choreographing, and, or, yeah, and then so I did, and that was yeah, this is the third big show that I've been part of. Amazing. So. I, yeah, I didn't know that was happening in Auckland. Yeah. I'd love to go see a show, as I'm sure everyone would now that they've heard that. Anyway, let's get into your talk. I'm excited to hear about um, teeth, I'm assuming. Uh, should we give her another round of applause? Grace McGuire. All right. Not many people go to work. And hold on, let me just adjust this. Not many people go to work and have people saying to them, I do not know how you can do what you do. Or why on earth did you choose this as a job? But when you're working in people's mouths, this is definitely not an uncommon occurrence. A little bit confronting, potentially a little bit rude start to an appointment. But I actually really do love being a hygienist. Chompers, pearly whites, fangs, whatever you like to call them. Teeth are a small body part, but they play, play a really crucial role in our, um, for us. Not only do they help with eating, but they also play an important part of speaking um, and also, obviously, the starring role in our smile. It's not uncommon for people to come up to me and ask me for advice on um, something that's going on in their mouth, which is... Which is fine. It's great to be able to help my friends. <laughs> it's, not unco- it's not uncommon at parties where pe- friends or maybe people I've just met have opened up their mouths to show me something in their mouth that's not quite right or a little bit curious. Um, <laughs> so most of the time, my response will have to be, you should probably just go see someone. The lighting here, I just can't see what you're talking about, but definitely get it checked out. <laughs> Last year, we were having some, um, I was having some drinks with some friends to celebrate the upcoming Christmas, and we were also celebrating because a friend of ours had got a new job, which was great because at her old work, it was quite a toxic environment. It turned out it was toxic for more than one reason, but both were from the same person. So the first was a bully, someone that was making her life really difficult at work, to the point where she actually went and got a new job, which was great. The second point I wasn't aware of until this moment when she said, Grace, I've actually been meaning to talk to you about this bully. The reason is she has atrocious breath. Ah, halitosis, I thought. She continued, 
I can't really talk to, I can't stand talking to her. It is so bad. I don't know how no one has said anything to her about it. I instantly thought, hey, this, this lady needs to see a hygienist as soon as she can. She needs to get that looked at. This really started an interesting debate, to tell or not to tell. And if you do, how do you go about this? It's awkward, it's confronting, and I think in our Kiwi culture, we kind of prefer just to take a step back, not necessarily from the breath itself, or maybe that too, but just to try not to rock the boat. I understand this situation was particularly tricky. Who wants to confront their bully with such a delicate and potentially embarrassing situation? A friend of mine recently had a similar situation at his workplace, but regarding someone with bad body odour. A manager took an interesting response to deal with this situation, where they actually kind of went head on, went to the supermarket, bought one of every deodorant type product, brought it back to the office, put it in the bathroom, sent a group email saying, hey, we've had some body odour issues in the office. If you're, um, if you're, there's some products in the bathroom, help yourself to whatever tickles your fancy. Um, great. This actually solved the issues. So that's a great response. And perhaps in a workplace environment, it's something if you don't want to confront the person themselves, especially if they're bullying you, then maybe it's something more to talk to management about. But what happens when it comes to someone you really care about? A few years ago, I was dating a guy who, not at the beginning, but I started to notice kind of iffy aroma from his mouth. It was just, there's, there's a real difference between the bad breath of someone or the confronting breath of someone who's just a, down to vindaloo compared to someone who actually has something not right in their mouth. This, and when you work in people's mouths, as I do, there's a particular smell which comes from someone who's having issues with their gum health. And that's definitely what was going on here. I gently kind of started to encourage him to be like, hey, hey, why don't you come see me for an appointment? Maybe I could clean your teeth. That would be great. <laughs> great bonding. Unfortunately, his response was, you're not looking in my mouth. That would be so weird. Ugh, that's so weird. That's so weird that you're, you're getting your hands in my mouth. Ugh. So, so <laughs> that approach didn't really work. I kind of get it. I mean, over the years, I've, seen, I've treated probably most of my family members, um, many friends, and it is kind of awkward having someone's hands in your mouth and their face right up in your teeth. And it's surprisingly intimate having someone in there. But if it's such, but in this case, this was a guy that I actually really cared about, and I was like quite worried about his teeth <laughs> and his breath. It's actually also really difficult to notice your own breath. When I see a patient who says they're having problems with bad breath, it never comes from them. It's always my, my son, my daughter, my partner has told me my breath's starting to smell. So I think it is really important to let someone know. Most cases of bad breath um, come from poor oral health. So generally, a dental checkup or a visit with a hygienist can actually really improve things, often quite e surprisingly easily. 
Gum disease is also a painless infection, so um, often people just don't have any idea. It's not that they don't want to help themselves, they just don't know that it's happening. So what did I do about this guy? Well, it actually kind of came to head when we decided to break up, because... Not because of the bad breath. <laughs> that was not the reason. But it kind of, I think at that point in time, I was like, you know what? There's no point. Um, I'm not going to be tactful. Um, this is my last chance to say something, so I'm going to be blunt. And I was. And I said to him, look, <laughs> there's something not right in your mouth. I know this <laughs> because I can smell it. And either you come and see me for an appointment. If you don't want to do that, that's fine, but you need to see someone else. <laughs> to deal with this. <laughs> Maybe it was being cruel to be kind, but whatever, the, whatever happened, he actually booked an appointment with me the following week. And it was a little bit of a, it was a, little bit of a catch me to I was kind of like, I don't really want to see you, but man, I really want to sort this out for you. So um, obviously that prevailed and I did clean up his teeth, which was very, very satisfying. <laughs> As for, as for the bully that worked with my friend, you know, I don't actually know what happened with them, but I really hope that someone who cared about them let them know um, the situation there. Teeth health is health. Your, your mouth is not detached from the rest of your body, so if something's not right in there, it's going to affect your body. So should you tell someone that you care about that they have bad breath? I think definitely. Most of us would rather have, if it was me, if it was any of you, I'm sure you'd rather have that slightly awkward conversation and be able to deal with it. Suggesting a trip to the dentist is probably a good place to start. Ah, excellent. Oh, my God, that story about the deodorant is so brutal. Oh, I know. Oh, man. But yeah, a good strategy. What, like, if you were in that workplace with the person with bad breath, would, do you have a strategy? Would you do something similar with toothpaste? Or? Well, when we were talking about this particular bully, I know my friend was like, I don't, care. I don't care about them. They've made my life awful. Why would I do something to... Because I was like, you should say something because there's something probably quite bad going on there that it's so noticeable for someone that's not even... Obviously, you're not getting very physically close with someone who's not very nice to you. Um, but I think for her, it was more like, you know what? I just need to forget about this person. <laughs> I was like, maybe you could just leave a note in her pigeonhole or something. <laughs> oh, but I definitely man. appreciate why she in the end chose just to leave it. That's amazing. Um, I did have my own bad breath story once where I was working with a guy. It was when I was at uni. We were working on a group project. And it was fine, fine, fine. We were like friends. And then one day, his breath was just so bad. And we were sitting beside each other. And I couldn't talk to him. I just had to like keep cutting off conversation. And then after that, he just didn't really like me anymore because I just snubbed him. I just, you know, when it's so bad, you just can't encourage them to speak. Yeah. they speak yeah. at you. Totally. There's this interesting, um, on the Colgate website, there's this interesting <laughs> quiz, which I discovered, um, about, like, what's your bad breath etiquette? And, like, where do you fall? And it's a ridiculous quiz, which holds, like, no interesting information. Um, but one of the things, one of their tips was kind of, like, just offer someone a breath mint. You know, those kind of things. That kind of general vibe. But I'm like, that maybe 
may help for like the here and now, but it's not going to solve any real issue. And like when it's really bad, is a breathment enough? I don't, I don't, no, I don't think so. Um, I also love what you said about the people like showing you their mouths because I definitely there seems to be a few professions where this just happens, right? I've got friends that are nurses; they're always getting showed weird, showing weird stuff. Yeah. Or I think like even if you're like a mechanic or any kind of useful job, people are always like, asking hey, you for see this free thing. And, and the mouth is particularly awkward because if someone's like. Uh-huh. You can't actually really see unless I've got like my light and my mirror. It's, it's very difficult, and, or it's, it's a front tooth, maybe, maybe. <laughs> That's amazing. I'm. I just feel like I've been opened up to all these new thoughts about teeth, and I love it. Happy to. <laughs> Thank you so much, Grace. Let's give her another round of applause. Oh man, I kind of want to brush my teeth right now. <laughs> Okay, let's bring on our final guest, our final speaker. This is Laura Giddy. She's a house sitter and celebrant in Auckland who loves podcasts, op shops, reading and volunteering, but hates houseplants. <laughs> Shall we give her a round of applause? Hi, Laura. Hi. How are you going? Hi. Great. That's good to hear. Um, how did you become a celebrant? Uh, so that's celebrant, in case anybody misheard. I was once at a wedding where somebody's awkward uncle was like, how long have you been celibate for? Was, oh, no. A while, yeah. Um, uh, awkward then, uncle's a common feature of yeah. weddings. Mm. Yeah, everyone has one, I reckon. But And then he realized what he'd said, and I realized straight away what he'd said. And I was quite happy for us both to realize, but no one to acknowledge it. Like, we could just keep going and not, but then he needed to address it and apologize, and then it just made the situation, like, six times more awkward. Well, he wouldn't be an awkward uncle sure, if, if he didn't, he didn't, didn't that bring it up. Yeah, so, so five years, yeah, yeah, to, um, to both those and what led you into it? Because it's not a, a career path that I've ever really thought about before. But yeah, so when friends of mine got engaged um, six, yeah, six or so years ago, they asked me if I would marry them, uh, and so I got my license and um, married them and loved it. And as I pronounced them husband and wife, my voice broke a little bit with the emotion, which was really sweet and embarrassing at the same time. And, um, but I just really enjoyed it. And then kind of other people asked or friends of friends were looking and I just kind of kept going. And now I've, yeah, built it up to be mostly full-time, um, gig and yeah, I love, I love, love. That's awesome. That actually leads nicely into my next question, which I was going to ask do you become a bit jaded about romance, <laughs> seeing so many weddings? Um, it, it's not very often, but sometimes I'll have like three or four weddings in a weekend. And by the end of, by like Sunday night, I'm like, I don't want to talk about love. Like I just have to go and like, just not talk to anybody, but also not think about nice things because I'm just over it. Um, but mostly, no, I love it. No, mostly love's great. No, I'm not jaded because every relationship is different and you see people getting together like at different stages of their life. And sometimes it's the second or third time round. Sometimes they're really young. Sometimes I've got kids. Like there's just no one way of people getting together, which is kind of encouraging because it's not like there's one path. And if you miss that path, you're like doomed to be single forever. So it's kind of encouraging that there's so many different ways that people are finding each other. Oh, so. that's lovely. Do any people, I feel like you keep bringing it lovely. And I just want to ask like weird, awkward yeah. questions. <laughs> 
Do people ever like ask for, for weird requests in their wedding ceremonies? Not, yeah, it's not inappropriate, just funny weird. <laughs> Guys. I'm wondering what an inappropriate request might be. Um, I haven't had any yet, but um, when people contact me on my um, Facebook business page particularly, I definitely hop on over to their profile just for a cosy stalk, like don't we all? Um, And uh, one time I definitely picked up a bit of a neo-Nazi vibe, which um, was unexpected and not something I really wanted to be part of. Um, And like maybe that wouldn't have come through at their wedding at all, but maybe it would have. And I just, yeah, I just don't, don't. So I was thinking about, I ended up just, they, they never got back to me and it was fine, but I was thinking about maybe I'll say that I've got like a, a gay wedding and they're also both in wheelchairs and they're both like African-American or something just to like really drive the point home that these are the people I want to be involved with and not people like you who are like generally horrible. But um, Like a little test. Yeah, just to test them and see if they, yeah. But other than that, no, people in New Zealand are pretty normal, so <laughs> nothing too weird. Oh, that's lovely to hear. Okay, well, shall we get into your story? Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Laura Giddy, everyone. So this story is nothing about that. I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's just not. Uh, Okay, so, so far I have donated my eggs four times, resulting in one successful pregnancy and birth, and one pregnancy which is six months along. So I was trawling Facebook one day, again, as we all do. I sound like I do it a lot, but... um, I do. And um, I saw a post that was shared on behalf of a fertility clinic, and it was asking people to consider egg donation for people that couldn't get pregnant. Um, And as soon as I saw the ad, like I looked in, I thought, yeah, I could probably do that. And while I've obviously given this decision a lot of thought over the last couple of years, and I've discussed the options with um, the people closest to me, I've often returned to my immediate interest uh, in the idea as a bit of a litmus test. Um, Because I think that we can trust our gut instincts on lots of things. And I think that I knew pretty early on that I was emotionally capable of doing this. Um, And lots of friends that I've talked to have straight away been like, oh, no, couldn't do that. And that's fine. But I knew quite early on that it was something I could consider. Um, So someone needed something. I had the capacity to help. And it kind of made sense in my mind. Um, So I believe quite strongly in being nice to people if we can and being kind and turning some of the not so nice things that there are in the world into nice things if possible. Uh, My parents are really generous people and they give their time and money away freely and so I think I've been raised uh, raised to do the same or at least to try and look out for people and help where I can. And while maybe one day I'd consider kids for myself, I've never been somebody for whom being a parent is the lifelong dream. And I've also grown up in a small family with not really extended family around. And so the idea of having that familial blood genetic connection doesn't really hold that strongly with me. My parents made the effort to put people around us that became like family because we didn't have uh, aunties and uncles and grandparents around. So I think this colored my decision to donate eggs because I consider family to be who you choose and who you invest your time and your care into, not somebody who just shares your DNA. So likewise, I'm confident that the couples who've got my eggs will love and invest time into their child, and that is what makes them parents. 
So the process medically uh, is pretty amazing, and I'm constantly wowed by the technology that we have to enable donations to happen. So in New Zealand, it's not paid, um, but all your medical bills are covered. And after deciding to proceed, I took hormone injections for between 10 to 15 days. And each, every few days during that process, I would go to the clinic for a scan to see how my eggs were growing uh, and how big they were getting. When they were at a good size, you're given a trigger injection that prepares your body to release them. And then on the day of the extraction, extraction, uh, there's about six or seven people in the room for, for this. You've got an anaesthetist, embryologist, doctors, nurses, and my mum came along a couple of times, so she was there. Uh, fair to say that a lot of people have seen what's between my legs. The, the clinic does give you a little modesty blanket for your knees, but it's really redundant because you're basically in stirrups and uh, everyone's taken a look. So as soon as the extraction is done, uh, they can tell you how many eggs they've got out. So I've averaged about 25 eggs each time. Uh, and each follicle is about 20 millimeters, which is small, but then 30 of them is really like, can get a bit bloated towards the end uh, in your stomach. So the recovery time involves a couple of days of cramping, um, and then I was pretty much back to normal. Obviously, everybody can have a different experience um, with this kind of treatment, but I didn't really feel anything, um, except one time on the day or so after I donated, I saw a video on YouTube of puppies on a playground slide, and I started crying, but they could have just been the puppies. It was an emotional... <laughs> they were really loving life, so... Um, recent, recently, I met the first baby to have been born from my eggs. And, yeah, so when his mum rang and told me that they were pregnant, um, that the... Um, implant had worked. We both cried on the phone. Uh, and I had met up with his parents during the pregnancy and I'd been to the baby shower. So I knew when she was due and was kind of kept informed as to how he was developing. And I felt so excited on the day that I knew she was being induced. And I was quite anxious for the next couple of days, like waiting to hear the news. Um, although after our first story, I don't know why anybody would want to. But um, <laughs> I can 100% genuinely say that when I got the text that he'd arrived, I was stoked for them. Um, I was pretty confident that there wouldn't be any other funny feelings going on, but that if they did pop up, I would cope with them. Um, I felt so happy that it had worked and that this lovely new family, lovely family had a new addition. So a few weeks later, I went and met him, and it's safe to say that he's adorable. Um, and also that he's a great sleeper and eater, which are genetic skills of mine. So... I, I still don't feel um, emotionally attached. To me, it's as exciting as when friends of mine have had babies. Um, and I'm also just really happy to head home to my independent non-baby life where I get to sleep through the night. Uh, on Christmas Eve, um, just been, I found out that my second family that I donated to were 12 weeks pregnant. And that was like the best Christmas gift ever. Um, and I'm waiting to match with my next family. And so I've got some eggs already on ice for them. So lots of people have asked me when I was thinking about doing this, you know, how do you think you'll feel in 20 or 10 or five years time about this decision? And uh, I don't know because we don't know the future. Uh, and I don't know if I'm going to end up with a partner who might resent or have some complicated feelings about this decision. I don't know if I'll be able to get pregnant one day or if I'll even want to. And if I can't, maybe I'll think differently about uh, the fact that I donated my eggs. 
But I can't imagine these feelings eventuating, but like with anything in life, we can't really future-proof for every possibility. Um, And I'm aware that it could hold some bittersweet moments, but I think that these moments of wondering or sadness are just part and parcel with life, and they're not compelling enough reasons for me not to have donated in the first place. And even if I do have a moment one day where I feel a little bit sad about it, uh, I know that I gave to people who really wanted a child, a child that I could help them get with very little um, physical impact on me. So in terms of ongoing contact with these uh, families, um, the future is discussed in the counselling meetings that we have, um, but generally because it's the first time the parties are both going through it, it's kind of figured out along the way. Uh, In New Zealand, the system is set up that you can't donate anonymously, so the clinics encourage open arrangements and that the kids always know that they were made using donor egg or donor sperm. So if you think about it, finding out any kind of secret at age 16 is not going to end well. And so it's always better to know your history sort of from as early as you can remember. So there might be one day in the future where I'm hanging out in a room with all of my donor families. And they might be saying like, thanks, Laura, so much for the wide feet and for the lankiness and great eyelashes and appreciation for books and dislike for sport. Like, thanks so much for those things. Um, And I'm sure I would hear their genuine appreciation, but then I would point at their parents and say, these are the people who loved you and who wanted you so much that they sought out help to get you. I did a really small thing, but it was their love that grew you. That was such a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing that with us. And also, like, I've, I've never heard anyone speak about that process before. When, when you decided to do it, did you know anyone that had been through it? No, I didn't know anybody who donated. Um, I had friends at the time who had gone through about five years of IVF, and they've since had a baby, which is amazing. But it was them that I thought of when I first saw the ad, like if I, if I could do something to help. You know, when you see your friends going through something like that, like, of course, you'd want to help. And it's obviously different to give to people that you know, but I did kind of have them in mind. And then once I started looking into into it, I did kind of meet up with other people who'd gone through it. But, yeah, it's just not a very commonly, like, talked about thing. So um, if I can, like, I'd at least like to encourage people to think about doing it. We don't all have to do it, but there's so many people on the waiting list that we could give it some thought, I guess. And how do you match with a family? Yeah, so it is a matching. It is like a, a Tinder process. and um, There's not an app, surely. <laughs> no, but I'm sure there will be one day. Um, so you, I fill out like a profile, and they fill out a profile, and you, they get exchanged you know, through the clinic, and so then you're reading all this information. But it's weird stuff like the questions are, you know, covering your whole medical history, which makes sense, but then other stuff which is like, you know, did you enjoy high school? And I'm like, well, no, but, like, what is that? I don't know. So um, it's just some, yeah, some, some funny things. And then you kind of decide if you want to take it further, and then you meet with them, and you have, like, um, a counselling session between you and the couple. Um, I'd already met with my couples outside of the clinic, so it was kind of easier to see them in that environment. But, um, yeah, at each point you can kind of decide if you want to proceed or maybe if the vibe doesn't feel right, you don't have to. So they choose you, but you also choose them. Yeah, 
Yeah, because everyone's got to be on board with it and, you know, you're going to try and be pretty honest with each other about how everyone's feeling. So if you're not vibing with them, then it's probably not the best relationship to keep pursuing. And so as it, you, you, you get the eggs um, removed and then they, they're on ice and then you go through the process or do you do it after you've matched with someone? So the first couple of times I matched with them first and then we did the extraction um, mixed them in a cocktail with the sperm and um, then put them into the mother. And then this time around, um, I donated first um, and then now I'm going to, like, take my pick, I suppose, which seems weird. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's bizarre, but it's fascinating. Um, like you said at the top, technology is amazing, what we can do. Um, I just want to end by saying, I don't think it's weird to cry at puppies on a slide. You should have seen me the other day when I read that pigs can cry. I just, like, lost, just lost it. <laughs> yeah, and you're not, that I know of, on hormone injection, yeah, so you've got I no excuse. I think that's just yeah. a normal thing. Um, thank you so much, Laura. That was a beautiful talk. And that is the show. Um, thank you for coming, and especially thank you to our three wonderful speakers, Grace McGuire, Laura Giddy, and Jordan Mark Windsor. Uh, what a call it is a monthly event, so do come along next month. I won't be here. I might be here in the audience, um, but it, it should be great. And if you'd like to share a story, you can contact the team on their Facebook page. Or if you'd like to nominate someone else to share a story, this is also encouraged. Um, finally, I have been made aware that this is Anna's last water cooler, uh, so I think the whole team wanted to say a big thank you to Anna. Um, she, I, I know her personally and she's amazing in everything that she does so I'm sure that she's been amazing on the water cooler team she's a producer and excellent I'll yeah, go off and have a great Thursday night you're dismissed <laughs>